You're listening to What Mad Universe on the HyperX Podcast Network. Check out all our shows on podcast.hyperx.com. Content warning. Serial killings, colonialism, xenophobia, racism, anti-Semitism, ableism, and evil clowns. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. so far from here, he reflected, that eight years ago, poor old Aminophis Fikey gave himself to the dog-headed god of the gates, lost most of his mind, and all of his magic, except that damned body-switching spell, and ran off with a pistol ball in his belly and the mark of Anubis whiskering out all over him. Ran off to a dubious career as Dog-Faced Joe, the werewolf that London mothers threatened badly behaving children with, leaving Romany, a Ka that should have been retired long ago, in charge of Fikey's post, the entire United Kingdom. Well, Romany thought complacently, the Master obviously did a good job of drawing this Ka. I don't think Fikey, or even Romanelli, could have done any better at the task of maintaining and protecting the Master's British interests. I suppose he'll retire me, render me back down to the primal pout, after our coup here this week. I won't be sorry to go. Eight years is long enough for a Ka. I do just wish, though, he thought with a narrowing of his predatory eyes, that I could have solved the mystery of that alarmingly well-educated group of magicians that made use of Fikey's haphazard gates for travel. That one I had, that Doyle, seemed like he would have cracked open nicely if I could have had a little time with him. I wonder where on earth they came from. And the answer came to him so quickly that he grimaced with self-disgust at not having thought of it sooner. Certainly the people in the coaches had jumped from one gate to another, but why had he assumed that the two gates had to exist at the same time? Doyle's crew of sorcerers had come to September 1st, 1810, from a gate in another time. And if they can do that trick, thought Romany excitedly, so can we. Fikey or sacrifice may not have been in vain after all. Ra and Osiris, what could we, what couldn't we do? Jump back and prevent the British from taking Cairo? Or further back and undermine England so that by this century it isn't a nation of any consequence? And to think, all Doyle's party did with his power was come back to hear a poet give a speech. We'll use it more purposefully, he thought, as a rare, wolfish grin slowly split his face. So when is a steampunk book not a steampunk book? I would argue it's when it's the Anubis Gates by Tim Powers, which is a uh, book... uh, Tim Powers is one of a circle of three people, uh, along with James Blaylock and K.W. Jeter, for whom the term steampunk was originally applied. But uh, the book itself is not really steampunk as we understand it, and in fact, uh, Powers apparently never particularly liked having the term applied to his work. Uh, And yet, nevertheless, it's somewhat of a fundamental steampunk novel for that exact reason. Today we'll be looking at it, and we'll be right back after this. Find inflation the old-fashioned way, by spending less money. Check out the HyperX store at Amazon.com to find great Prime Day deals on July 12th and 13th. Stock up on new gaming gear so you'll be equipped for the new launches and content drops. Mark your calendars and set your alarms. Deals like this won't stick around long. The Hardcore Gaming 101 podcast is on a mission to rank the top games of all time. I like the idea that when Bruce Wayne gets angry, he switches to the Batman voice. Why do you have such a problem making boomerangs shaped like a bat? You mean like Batman? Not like Batman, just make it for me! Bruce Wayne, I can't even with this guy. It's a Herculean task, and I'd be lying if I said it hasn't taken a toll on our cognitive faculties. Most people would be happy to have a job during a global pandemic. (laughs) Dennis! Hardcore Gaming 101, twice a week, every week, right here on the HyperX Podcast Network. We're looking at um, 
The Anubis Gates by Tim Powers uh, here on What Mad Universe. Once again, I'm your host, Adam Prosser, and my co-host is Philip Rice. Hello. Uh, I just wanted to start off by saying uh, this one I haven't read and know nothing about. So all that uh, stuff you read at the beginning is very interesting. It's not what I w- was expecting. No, uh, that was the the arguably the main villain of the story, although there's a couple of villains. Um uh he uh uh Romani, Dr. Romani. Um he uh and to, just to be confusing, he's a clone of another bad guy who is identical to him and kind of takes over for him later in the story. <laughs> um yeah, so there's there's a lot to to follow about this. Um yeah, so this this is a very um to, it's a very hard book to summarize and describe. Um and yet it it, it it's it's a good book because it doesn't feel convoluted or that crazy when you're reading it. Everything makes a certain sense. Um, it, it, it's really actually pretty uh, astounding work of just like crazy quilt sewing everything together. Like it's actually, uh, it's got all these different ideas. It's got, you know, uh, Egyptian, ancient Egyptian cultic magic, uh, you know, uh, time travel, uh, it's set in George, mostly in not actually Victorian England, Georgian England, uh, 1810. Um, it's uh, it's got uh, a, a serial killer who switches bodies. Uh, it's got uh, a, a, a basically uh, an evil group of uh, of uh, beggar beggars living beneath London, with whom the hero falls in, and it's uh, got the romantic poets. Uh, another one, as with the the other steampunk novel we looked at so far, um, um, the uh, uh, the difference engine. Uh, Lord Byron is a is a factor in this story as well, um, as is Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Um, and it's oh, all Lord Byron. He gets in everywhere, just like in real life. <laughs> he really does. Yeah, he's a he's. I mean, he was off stage for most of. Uh, I don't think he actually appeared in person in. Uh, in the difference engine, he was kind of, but he's a, he's an off screen figure. Um, here he plays a big role in the, in the, in the story. Um, his, it's, uh, tied into the fact that apparently he was, uh, supposedly spotted in London in 1810, despite the fact that he was in Greece at the time fighting famously in the, uh, Greek, uh, war for independence. And this is the thing that Powers does that's actually really cool. Apparently, this is a big part of uh, of his books. He takes various historical trivia and um, like weird incidents and mysteries and uh, strange little anomalous things that people mention, urban legends almost, and he knits it into a big story. So that's that's like he everything that ha- and apparently he very specifically set himself the goal of uh, everything that happens that would be historically verifiable will fit with actual history. I'm not going to deviate from real history, from what we know of real history. It's just that I'm going to be filling in the gaps with magic and and fantasy and time travel and things like that um, as an explanation for some of the stuff that happens, right? So, uh, yeah, and that's that's Powers' thing. He, um, he does um, historical fantasy, essentially. Uh, although it, this gets sometimes called a science fiction novel because the way it handles time travel and some of the other aspects feels more like science fiction, even though it's very explicitly said to be magic. Um, but it is uh, it is definitely um, um, a fantasy novel, and and yeah, he he uh, he 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 works with it the way you would work with a science fiction novel, uh, but it's it's fantasy. Um, so that's one way in which it's not really steampunk. Another way, as I said, is it's not the Victorian era technically; it's the it's the Georgian era. I don't know if that's actually a rule for steampunk that it has to be the Victorian era, but um, you know, I mean, I think with the uh, way they like you know separate out like clock punk and stuff, I guess it it would be. But I think it's it's often a more broader term. Do they do that? They say clock punk is different from something else. Yeah. Yes. Clock punk is like. Um, I believe like uh, a Renaissance, uh, oh, I sort see. of uh, aesthetics and and technology, but you know, 
advanced. Yeah, I've always been uh, curious about that because, you know, there are other eras. I've always wondered, there's probably a novel or a, a comic or something out there that, that deals with sort of the uh, Isaac Newton or uh, Leonardo da Vinci eras, you know. Oh, where... yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely Leonardo da Vinci. That comes up a lot. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's a thing in Marvel comics. In, right. I believe in the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. series. He's like a secret right. member of, of the S.H.I.E.L.D. organization that they dated back centuries yeah, I, I have and, actually and read that. Yeah, yeah, I haven't, but I've I've seen a lot of the artwork that's really cool of uh, yeah. uh, Leonardo's like Iron Man armor, but in yeah, know, right, it's like uh, you know Renaissance style. Yeah, but it's not codified the way steampunk is. It's interesting that like no. you know you can obviously you can use Leonardo da Vinci as like yeah he invented all this crazy retro sci-fi stuff, but um, it's not yeah it's not usually codified as a genre. I guess. Um, which is strange because it's just as interesting a historical era as you know the Victorian era. But and then there's like I always said, and again I you know there are books that do this, but um, stuff that deal with like uh, the golden age of Islam, where which was sort of the, the scientific pinnacle of the world, and you could do China or Japan at various points in their history uh, where they were pretty advanced, China especially, um, and other oh, other. I, I I can think of another one with Islam actually uh, the. Uh... Another comic example, uh, Demon Knights by P Paul Cornell, and uh, I forget the artist on that, mm -hmm. um, had a character named Algebra, uh, who was a um, genius uh, from, um, it, it is a comic set in the medieval era with like all the characters who would have been around at that time, like right. Savage and Shining oh. Knight. Um, and uh, one, of the, yeah, one of the members of the team was like a um, Muslim, uh, again, sort of a Tony Stark-like character. Right. Yeah, that's that's definitely um, like again. Yeah, that that makes sense, and it has been used. It's just funny that like steampunk is codified as a as a subgenre, and, yeah. <laughs> and none of these other ones are. Um, and I mean, well, that that kind of gets into what I'm saying here. So the thing is that right around the time this book was published in 1983, um, and uh, there were three authors, as I said, um, Tim Powers. Uh, James Blaylock, who we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to read Homunculus for the show. That was the the pivotal uh, book. This book, Anubis Gates, and uh, Morlock Knight by K W K W Jeter, and also um, uh, uh, Infernal Devices is another is another book of his, which is a bit later. I think that's eighty nine. Um, and um, but at the time, people were like, um, J actually, Jeter was the one who sort of said, "I recommend that you give a name to this movement because we're all writing." Victorian era uh, novels about that are retro sci-fi and fantasy, you know, and he suggested the name steampunk, which was derived from the fact that cyberpunk again was becoming very popular uh, as a genre, and he sort of he, he sort of turned it around to turn it into steampunk. So it was the author itself, uh, because Jeter is Jeter's was the first Morlock Knight. We are going to get to that one on the series, um, and so he's the reason that that became. Uh, the term um, and um, and then of course um, uh, William Gibson and Bruce Sterling wrote uh, an actual their own steampunk novel The Difference Engine which is actually after all these ones so we, we did cover that one but it's actually interesting that <laughs> a steampunk novel from the creator of cyberpunk which is often identified as crucial to steampunk and in some ways is a much more typical steampunk novel certainly than this one uh, is nevertheless after all these other books so that's just kind of interesting um, but yeah, the three of them were all friends, uh, uh, Blaylock and, um, uh, uh, Powers created a character named William Ashbless, who they both used in their books, uh, including this one. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but let me just tell you uh, a bit about this story. So this is a bit more, this is closer to something like Neil Gaiman would do. Um, it's, um, it is, uh, you know, urban fantasy, but historical urban fantasy, um, it involves a guy named uh, Brendan Doyle, who's an American, who's an expert in um, uh, Samuel Taylor. Well, he's a he's a he's a Coleridge scholar, um, and he managed he he falls in with a uh, a billionaire uh, named Darrow, uh, who says um, uh, basically reveals to him that he's found time travel. He's found a way to travel through time, um, and after some initial skepticism, Doyle goes along with him and finds that he's correct. Um, and Darrow basically says, well, I want to go back in time and, and see, uh, the, the gates, oh, these gates 
through time open to certain specific time frames. You can't just you can't just leap through to any time you want. You have to show up at certain times that the gates have historically opened. Uh, there was one in 1810, and I want to go and use it to go see um, Samuel Taylor, Taylor Coleridge give a uh, a talk. Which was, and since you're a Coleridge scholar, I want you to help you know guide uh, me and my party of rich people who have paid a lot for the privilege uh, to uh, to guide us that way. And Doyle sort of goes, okay, hey, it's, you know, I think he offers him something like a million dollars. So uh, Doyle just goes, hey, you know, I'm not going to say no to that. Uh, I think this guy's a crackpot, but, you know, he quickly realizes it is, in fact, true. Um, they're, they're given these uh, devices that are supposed to basically a link to, um, to the present. So they'll be drawn back automatically after, uh, I think, 12 hours. Uh, it turns out Darrow has a, uh, another, um, you know, uh, 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 ulterior motive, of course, um, which was, you know, he, he did want to see Coleridge speak, but he also, um, he knew that at this time there was a, uh, a, a figure named, apparently a serial killer named Dogface Joe, who was operating. And um, Dogface Joe seems to have the ability to switch bodies. Um, and in fact, after every, uh, he, he'll be in one person's body, and then the, eventually that body will start to grow hair all over it, like a werewolf, uh, at which point he'll have to abandon that body because it becomes too much trouble to keep shaving. Um, and uh, he'll switch bodies with someone else uh, after poisoning himself um, so that the, the other body dies, and he's got a new body to keep going with. Darrow wants to get hold of this guy and basically pay him to... Um, <laughs> to uh, to switch bodies for him because Darrow is dying, so that's the start. Th that's what gets the plot started. Now, even more complex than that, he realizes that when he gets back uh, to the Georgian era, um, the Dogface Joe is a is the character who I mentioned in that opening segment named uh, Amenophis Fikey, uh, who is a member of a a, a, a secret cult that goes back to ancient Egypt and which is overseen by a very ancient sorcerer who literally, you know, is still angry thousands of years later um, that uh, Egypt was overthrown by other nations, including at the, at the current time in 1810, the British who are, uh, who have invaded England. But before that it was the French. And before that there were all kinds of other, um, other various of the Turks and so on. He wants to restore, um, ancient Egypt to its, uh, you know, to being the, the great power of the world uh, and use all the Egyptian magic, which used to be a lot stronger. It's much weaker in, in 1810. And uh, and, uh, and uh, Amenophis uh, had actually, um, working for the master, had uh, opened up a, uh, a the portals with the, the strange hope that they could bring the ancient Egyptian deities forward into the present uh, thereby give like enhancing their power tenfold uh, the the power of the sorcerers that is uh, and allowing them to reconquer the world um, and it actually failed but it did open these gates all throughout time um, which is what Doyle and his group have has used uh, with me so far <laughs> yeah I think so <laughs> so um, and uh, yeah so the it, the this failed uh, the the gates failed but Emmanophis uh, uh, basically was uh, thrown forward in time and has started jumping bodies the way uh, the way he he did. Um, and um, so uh, when Doyle gets back, he actually gets stranded in 1810. Uh, he gets uh, because uh, a mysterious man named Doctor Romany uh, actually kidnaps him. Uh, and Romany is what's called a ka. Uh, if you know ancient Egypt and stuff, you know ka was their word for the soul. Uh, I'm not sure powers or is one of the parts of the soul. Uh, right. The ancient Egyptians had like I can't remember the, but it, different. At least at least uh, three, yeah. Yeah. Um. One of them was the name. Uh, another was yeah. What yeah, survives the ba. in the afterlife? Yeah. Yeah. I think the kef was another one. Yeah. There's all these. Di yeah. You're 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 made up of all these different parts, or at least the the pharaohs and the nobles were. I'm not sure that was necessarily true of every person, but. 
um, it was, yeah, the like, and it was their way of saying, like, well, the king is uh, embodied in the new pharaoh, or the pharaoh is embodied in the new pharaoh, but also the old pharaoh has gone to the underworld to rule, and also he's merged with the god Ra, and like, like it, it was their way of basically <laughs> compensating for all the different uh, things the pharaoh was supposed to do after death, and how he was st supposed to still be alive, and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> but um, in this book, Aka is actually a uh, basically a magical clone or homunculus you can make of yourself uh, out of your own blood. It grows into a, a duplicate with all your... Well, it can have all your memories, or you can, you can fiddle with the memories or erase them if you want. Um, and Romany is a, is a copy of a guy named Dr. Romanelli, uh, who has... Uh, and Romanelli is actually in um, various places in the Mediterranean over the course of the book, but he's actually a real person, apparently. He did... Uh, he oversaw um, uh, Lord Byron uh, when he was sick uh, in Greece, and um, uh, or possibly Turkey. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little mixed up on where he is at this point. And uh, Romanelli in the book is is a villain. He's one of these sorcerers. Uh, so he creates a clone of himself named Doctor Romany to go and oversee England. Um, and uh, Romany was actually there when Emmanuelus uh, Fikey fell through the Anubis gates. Uh, so he's basically been overseeing England. Um, and he's kind of the main villain, but he, again, he's a copy of the of Romanelli. So partway through the book, Romany kind of gets knocked out, but Romanelli just comes in and takes over. Um, so um, yeah, he's uh, he's basically gotten Ro Romany has gotten wind of these the existence of the gates uh, eventually, and that's why he grabs hold of Doyle um, eventually. Also. Uh, Amenophis, uh, sorry, Doyle falls in with uh, these uh, um, cut purses. It's kind of a an Oliver Twist type uh, gang of street urchins, but uh, much less cozy. Uh, and they're <laughs> they're they're overseen by um, a very memorable character named uh, Horobin, who is a he's a Fagin type, but he's um, he's a clown. He's um, he's uh, apparently disfigured. Uh, and that's why he dresses as a clown, so people can't see it as easily. Um, and he walks around everywhere on stilts, and um, he's got sorcerer's powers. And he's actually been like, he, he likes to, uh, he, he, he apparently uses sorcery to kind of mutate uh, his, the people under his, under his, uh, under his charge um, to make them more efficient as beggars, because they'll be like horribly disfigured or whatever but sometimes it goes too far and he creates like these really crazy animal mutants who he calls the mistakes and he keeps locked up in his uh secret hideout under under london uh and um yeah so it's really uh doyle falls a follow these people and uh it gets uh, he's he's really uh sucked into this uh horrific world uh some people people actually suggested that horribin might be uh, an inspiration for um Stephen King's it because he's also a uh, horrible clown that lives in the sewers and snatches children and has magical powers. Um, so I can see it makes sense to me. Um, yeah. But Horbin is, is kind of a flunky. In fact, like he's a flunky of Roman Romany. Who's a flunky of the master. Um, and uh, there's also a, one of the people circulating through the, uh, the underworld of the, the street urchins and so on is, um, known as Jackie, but she's, it's actually a woman as disguised as a man, uh, who's gone under, uh, under, um, undercover as a man, as a, as a street urchin and a, and a, a cut purse, uh, because Dogface Joe killed her, uh, fiance and she's, uh, she's trying to, um, find him and kill him. Basically. She doesn't really know Dogface Joe has these weird magical powers, uh, but she's out to get them there. So she's in the mix as well. And there's a lot of incident. This is a very pulpy novel uh, in the sense of there's just constantly stuff being thrown at you. But it's very, like, it's quite sophisticated and complicated. Um, I'm not going to keep going on with the plot because lots of stuff happens. The biggest thing that happens is that Doyle um, gets caught by an Ophidus Fikey and uh, Fikey switches a uh, dog face. Well, I'll just call him Dogface Joe, as he's known. Uh, Dogface Joe switches into his body, and uh, first of all, Dogface Joe switches into Darrow's uh, bodyguard, who was this giant of a man. Um, and when uh, Doyle uh, gets loose um, uh, from the from Horobin, um, Fikey actually switches bodies with him again. So Doyle ends up in this giant 
like strong guy's body, which is heavily bearded and hairy, of course, because he's been taken over by Dogface Joe. Um, <clears throat> and um, as it happens, Doyle knows he realizes that he's eaten cyanide, uh, or uh, actually strychnine, I think, is what he gives him. And uh, Doyle actually knows the way to circumvent that. He just he's he wakes up in a in a um, uh, uh, like a, a boarding house, and there's a fire. And he realizes that if he eats charcoal, that actually smothers the uh, the poison. So he does that abruptly, and uh, so he survives. Um, so Doyle is in actually in this uh, this uh, this sort of uber strong body <laughs> for most of the novel. Um, and um, he starts to realize because uh, the other the other thing that Doyle has been doing is that he um, he wanted to uh, study a mysterious poet named William Ashbless, who uh, had been um, who wrote, you know, a few poems around this time, knew Coleridge, knew Byron, but didn't uh, leave much of a mark and had a lot of mysterious gaps in his in his history. And Doyle is actually probably the world's biggest expert on William Ash Ashbless, who is a fictional character. I, I mentioned that uh, everything was kind of historical, but um, it, it Powers wrote everything based on real history. But Ashbless is um, um, uh, a, a fictional character that the, the, the little circle of writers I mentioned created uh, in their youth, apparently. Apparently, it was because when they were in college, they wanted to write poetry that was mocking the sort of popular poetry at the time, uh, and they signed it William Ashbless. Um, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it, that was uh, that became their thing. And then uh, when Powers was writing this novel, he went and put William Ashbless, and apparently Blaylock put William Ashbless in one of his novels at the same time. And uh, the editor actually said, oh yeah, you've both got to talk to each other and make sure that it's consistent so you have like a shared universe. <laughs> the William Ashbless cinematic universe. Um, but... Um, what ends up happening, of course, is that um, he realizes that he is William Ashbless, and he, this is why he didn't, you know, of course he didn't see, he saw photos of the guy, and he was like, well, that's not me, but now he's in a new body, and he realized, oh, this is William Ashbless, I am William Ashbless, and he's writing, so they get into the bootstrap paradox, because he's like, I can just write his poems, but I didn't, <laughs> nobody wrote his poems, I only know them because I saw them written down in a book <laughs> in the future, and now I'm <laughs> writing them out as the poem, and uh, Doyle actually gets like into it very easily, and that, this is one of the weird things about the book. I would say uh, people adapt to the existence of the fantastical and the the surreal uh, very, very easily and very quickly. Um, and Doyle's even kind of going, um, "Oh, hey, this is great! I've got a great body. Uh, I'm on track to marry this one woman." Uh, I know I mar get married in such and such a time. Although he also knows he's going to die in 1846, that it's, somebody murders him in 1846. But he's like, okay, I got 35 years. That's fine. You know, well, that's a good life. Um, and I'll be a semi-celebrated poet and blah, blah, blah. So he actually gets like pretty accustomed to the idea of not going home and just becoming a 19th century uh, poet. Um, that, that's something that, and a few other people do that. They get thrown through time and they're just like, oh, I just, I'm here now. And, but I can write the works of Shakespeare, not th that, but you know, the, the equivalent of that. Um, uh, I, I find it odd that he only, uh, used the work of this one poet, and not all the other artists and, uh, creators to have, you know, done things throughout the 20th century. Well, um, what he ends up doing, um, this is actually, that's actually part of the book, uh, because, um, well, I mean, first of all, it's just he realizes he's William Ashbless, so he sort of sees it as like, well, I got to do what William Ashbless did, and I, I've got to be his, uh, you know, his proxy because I am him. Uh, but it also becomes clear, and it's uh, it's almost a spoiler to say this, uh, but you know, people are going back in time and being like, well, we can change history, we can do whatever we want, blah blah blah. It starts to become clear, although it's not a hundred percent clear. Um, like it, it starts to become evident that um you can't change history like everything that's happening fits with what he knew was going to happen in the future right so at any point he's like well uh you know uh i know ashbless did this and he know i know he meets byron which is weird because byron's supposed to be in in greece and he does indeed meet byron it's actually a car that romanelli created of byron to murder uh king george by the way um there as part of their scheme to undermine england um but um yeah like it, it's uh, he he basically um 
he basically starts to realize, oh, I'm, I'm on rails. I can't actually deviate from what's historically accurate. So he's not going to write the Beatles songs, as it were. He's going to just uh, stick with um, what he knows Ash Bless does, essentially. Which, I mean, and like I say, he knows he got a pretty good deal out of it. So he's like, well, I'm not going to shake it up too much once he gets in. I mean, for a lot of it, he's uh, the other thing is he's spending his time basically going, I'm going to escape this murderous Egyptian cult. So he doesn't have a ton of... T he is sort of thinking towards, once I get away from this, I'm just going to live the life of William Ash Bless. But right now his act is getting away from murder clown and uh, an Egyptian cult, basically. Um, at one point he does... Oh, I was, I was just thinking of like... Uh... What was that movie where uh, the guy uh, does all of the Beatles songs because yeah. they no longer exist? Right. Nobody else remembered them? Yeah. I, I don't know. It's just, well, he does it, do that. It seems like there's a lot more to draw from. Yeah. Well, I mean, he does do that, but for this one particular poet. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it's... it's um, yeah. He, I, I just find it funny that he doesn't draw from, you know, all the like more well-regarded, say, uh, writers of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, like I say, I think, and I mean, Doyle is literally a historian, so I, I think it's he almost feels like, well, i got to be true to history, okay. right? Um, and, and again, he, he gets to be friend. Like, he knows Ashblood, and he, even over the course of the story, he meets Byron and Coleridge, and he's like, I know I get to be friends with these people, which is, for him, a scholar of this exact period is amazing. And he's like, wow, I get to hang out with Byron and Coleridge, right? So, um, and I think he's also maybe a little nervous about altering the timeline. And then he realizes he can't alter the timeline. So, it, you know, it, 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 it jives with what he's doing, with him going like, yeah, I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. But you're right. He could be like, I'll invent the, you know, the light bulb and make. But, uh, you know, uh, that that reminds me of how Douglas Adams uh, kind of wrote about this in the last Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book, where he said like, yeah, you, you can talk about how if you went back in time or if you landed on a on a remote island or something and with with uh, with, you know, technologically uh, less uh, sophisticated people, you could you know hold them in awe with your knowledge. But then you're, it's like, do you actually know how to build <laughs> a light bulb? Do you know how to do any of the cool stuff that, you know, we can do in our time? Um, you know, and it's true. You'd, you know, you, you would actually be kind of lost with a lot of that stuff. You'd maybe know yeah, a few yeah. facts and fragments, but yeah. Yeah. That's why I thought of like, uh, writing, like you could write, yeah. um, I don't know, like even a, if you're even a semi-competent writer, yeah. you can sort of at, at least like get the, the broad strokes of the famous novels. You yeah. Know? Well, it's, although it's actually interesting because if you're writing at, uh, like if you tried to write a popular novel, you know, 50 years too early, people might not be ready for it. They might read it and go, what is this junk? This isn't what we're looking You know, a lot of novels it's became fair. popular yeah. because they were of the moment, right? Or poems or whatever. Whatever art was created, you know, it might have been that was exactly the moment for it. Um, and if you were trying to write something that existed at the time, you'd be stepping on the toes of the person who was actually going to write it, right? So, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's also, uh, and this is completely off topic, that, that Beatles movie, um, which I haven't seen, but I'm going to criticize anyway. Um, it, it, it bugs me because uh, the um, uh, apparently introducing the Beatles music in the modern day uh, would get you a lot of success, which makes sense on its face. But all the other music that was inspired by the Beatles right. in your life apparently also exists. Yeah. So I don't know. It wouldn't seem that revolutionary. Right. I think. Right. You're just ripping off like, the monkeys, you know. <laughs> you're just ripping off Oasis. Yeah. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that 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 that's the that is definitely the issue with art. Um, so yeah, so I mean, in a sense, it just makes sense. But but again, the hero's not really it. It's got that sort of pulp, uh, fast-paced thing going on. So the hero doesn't have a lot of Doyle doesn't have a lot of time to just sort of relax and and think that hard about it anyway. Speaking of not having time to think too much about anything, uh, let's take a break here for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with What Mad Universe. Hey, Joe, Brandon, do you want to review everything? No, yes. no, 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 hang on. That sounds like a lot of work. It's not. What do you mean? Yeah, it's not. Podfred Review, a podcast where we review everything and anything and get lost along the way. Find this podcast and more on the HyperX Podcast Network. Prime Day is coming. Check out the HyperX store on Amazon.com to find great Prime Day deals on July 12th and 13th. Stock up on the latest gaming gear from HyperX so you'll be ready for all the new launches and content drops this summer. Mark your calendars and set your alarms. Deals like this won't be around long. But, um, it's also worth noting that um, 
there's actually a good bit with Coleridge uh, near the climax because Coleridge actually ends up um, uh, trapped in Horobin's. Uh, it's called the Rat's Castle, the the place where the uh, the uh, uh, the subterranean uh, beggars and and uh, and cut purses all live. And um, he runs into the dungeon where he keeps all the mistakes. And Coleridge, of course, was an opium addict. Uh, they actually drug him with laudanum to keep him out, but of course he's such an opium addict that it, it it's a sm too small a dose for him, so he gets up and starts wandering around. But he thinks he's having an opium nightmare, basically. So he, he meets everything, and he's just like, oh, this is an interesting... You must be symbolic of my mind, somehow. He, there's a, it's a really funny bit where he keeps running into people, and then eventually these monsters. It's just like, what do you represent exactly? And they should let us go. And he's like, I don't think I should free the monster of my mind. Symbolically, that seems wrong. And they're like... Well, may maybe your were stress your hidden strengths that have been kept down for too long, and Coleridge goes, "Okay, that's an interesting point." Well, and so they talk Coleridge into letting them go because he thinks they're metaphors for his mind, basically, which is funny, <laughs> um, and that cues the climax of the story. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so and then and yeah, there's interesting time stuff. There has actually a segment where they end up throwing back even further to. Uh, the 1600s um and some other stuff happens they actually end up setting the great fire of london there there and the there was a famous cold snap at that period which we learn was apparently being caused by the the sorceress cult um so there's yeah there's lots of uh lots of uh, crazy incident but it really feels smooth like logically it all fits together very clearly it's it's a, it's pretty impressive in that regard um an interesting thing about the, uh, the the magic in this world, by the way, um, the magicians, um, when you start doing at least this kind of magic or evil magic uh, under the uh, the sway of this uh, tied in with this ancient Egyptian stuff, um, you have to kind of uh, remove yourself from the earth. Uh, to literally touch the earth actually hurts you. Um, and uh, that's why, as I mentioned, Horobin the Clown is on stilts all the time. And you realize this a little while into the story. Both the reader and Doyle realize this, that uh, uh, Horobin and then Romany actually walks on these very strange shoes that are spring-loaded. And in both cases, they're separating themselves from the earth. When we see the master, finally, he basically sits on a... On a um, on a like a hammock kind of that's suspended in a special chamber for him, so he never has to touch the ground. Um, that's apparently the cost of magic is that you can never touch the ground, or you can, but it's oh. painful. Oh, uh, I, I'm I'm just wondering. You you mentioned uh, boots with springs on them. Does that tie into String Heel Jack in any way? No, they do not connection. mention String Heel Jack. Um, I think I think the timing well, was, is a little. Yeah. I mean, Spring Heel Jack was early 1800s. So, oh, okay. Uh, Nope. Oh, 1837. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, they, they, um, they, I think he already had a, enough like historical curiosities packed into the story. <laughs> it probably would have been maybe one, one thing too many to do that. Um, cause it's, it's actually amazing that he was able to fit in so many little, uh, historical quirks and factoids and, and mysteries and anomalies and have it hang together as well as it could. I think one more would have been the straw that broke the camel's back in some <laughs> ways. So, um, but that is uh, anyway. That's just, it's just an interesting depiction of magic, and and um, uh, Doyle is able to circumvent their magic a few times by uh, finding a way to touch the ground. If you if you're in contact, direct contact with the ground, you uh, you're actually kind of immune to a lot of the magical stuff they'd like to do. Uh, and there's actually a secret society called the Antaeus Brotherhood. That's who he contacts in the 1600s, um, who uh, they wear chains through their shoes that touch their feet so that their feet are in contact with the ground, and that makes them, again, protects them from all the magic. And Antaeus, by the way, was a, um, in Greek mythology, he was a giant who had to touch the ground. He was invincible as long as he touched the ground, basically. Yeah, I was just, I was just thinking of him. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and Heracles managed to beat him by, uh, uh, you know, holding him up in like a wrestling move. Right, exactly. That's, well, just that, holding him in the air. Yeah, that's why they call themselves the Antaeus Brotherhood, because they gain strength by uh, touching the ground. Um, so that's that's kind of a that's that's the uh, their kryptonite for the the, the Egyptian sorcerers. Um, one thing I should mention, unfortunately, uh, that this book does have some problems with being generally kind of colonialist and really xenophobic, and of course it's set in 1810, so like the characters are 
in that regard. Uh, but it's not just the book, unfortunately. Um, it's written in just in with some assumptions. Um, the G slur is tossed around a lot. Romany is partly so-called because he takes up with a band of uh, of Roma who speak in um, uh, the uh, the uh, what's the patois that uh, circus people and and Roma Roma people speak. Um, Oh, Polari. That's it. It's Polari. Okay. Um, it's what it's called. Yeah. Anyway, so this is a yeah. This was a, a slang similar to you know Cockney slang and so forth that uh, existed back then and still apparently exists and apparently actually was adopted by uh, the LGBT community, which is why um, Grant Morrison has uh, Doom, uh, Danny the Street speaking it in Doom Patrol. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, anyway, um, but yeah, the, so, so Powers, and again, Powers has clearly done lots of research. He clearly knows the Romantic poets. He knows a lot about the Victorian era. There's certain historical stuff that gets brought up. Um, and he, he knew the Polari, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Roma slang. But unfortunately, he makes just the Romas into villains. Like they're, they're just, uh, they're dupes of, uh, Dr. Romany and, and, and the master of the circus. Um, and in general, the whole attitude is like, well, if these, it, it, like, the master wants to wants Egypt to be, you know, dominant over England, and you know, England being this colonizing force is apparently seen as something that has to be saved and protected. Like, we're the audience are are expected to say, oh no, I hope he doesn't bring down the British Empire. Like, we're we're just assumed to say that would be a horrible thing. I mean, the master is a villainous evil guy obviously and you know that we're talking about egyptian sorceress magic which was you know it was it was it it was kind of it was dark magic where lots of hor that did horrible things supposedly and and dealt with death but still like it, it it's very much a like oh no what if the what if the it colonized people rise up and overthrow the, the <laughs> like that's kind of the underlying fear and it's not interrogated in any real way uh in the story uh, similar to you know the hell attitude of well it's better for me to be a a Victorian poet you know like that you know I get all that all those perks and privileges and you know it just as I say he doesn't examine you know being thrown back in time and and he just accepts it it's there's a sort of underlying exception to that so that's probably the biggest weakness of the book in my mind um, that it doesn't it it when people say steampunk has that kind of uh, uh, chauvinistic feel to it um i think this is yeah. what they're talking about like we 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 read um difference engine it was the opposite of that like it was definitely delving into the politics and and challenging the you know the victorian empire as something that was good right and and complicating yeah. it and, and interrogating it this just kind of looks back at it most and again it's georgia not victorian but still it looks at the british empire nostalgically it doesn't it doesn't really uh, it doesn't really question the British Empire as a as a net good. It's just something that ex it doesn't say it's like the greatest thing ever. Uh, I will say that when he encounters the Antaeus Brotherhood in the 1810, which is like after their peak, um, they are portrayed as like a group of um, like racist white supremacists who are like, but they're also like a bunch of fusty old men with no real power, and they're just they're they're kind of useless. They just sit in the and and so. Like and their big thing is like writing letters about how there's too many Jews out nowadays, kind of thing. Uh, and it, that's like Powers clearly sort of portrays them as like a bunch of useless racist jerks, um, and very much in keeping with a lot of societies in England at the time, right? Um, so you know he's he's aware he's not like racism is cool, like he knows it's a bad thing. He just doesn't under you know he doesn't undercut any of the underlying stuff. Yeah. Um. But so the, the, yeah, yeah, go that, ahead. that does that. Like you said, that is a common uh, criticism of, of steampunk as a as a wide wider genre. Yeah, that is just like oh, cool, um, you know, blimps in the Victorian yeah, era. Yeah, you know, it's... exactly. And and I, so I'll be interesting to read Morlock Knight, which is I really the I think the what we could we're sort of narrowing in on that being the first proper steampunk novel. So, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to sort of... Yeah, I, I read the, the Wikipedia for that. That looks really fun, actually. I think I'll, I'll yeah. give that a read Yeah, as well. so hopefully we'll do that in a few episodes' time. Uh, but yeah, so we should both uh, read that. We're, uh, we're planning to read that one. Um, eh, so I think uh, I'm just about done. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add? 
I um, know I've been talking all the whole time, but oh no, that, that's I that's fair. I have not read it. Yeah. Um, yeah. um I don't know. Uh, any connection with uh, the Stargate? Some aspects remind <laughs> me of Stargate. Actually, yeah. When you mentioned that, I wonder if um, I wonder if uh, that was something that um, that uh, the people I forget who what, Emirates, right? Uh, the, yeah, yeah. Roland Emmerich. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did the. Um, he did movie, the, the yeah. Stargate movie. Yeah, actually, when you mention that, I kind of go, oh, you know. Now, of course, that's partly also the Von Donneken thing of ancient Egyptians built the pyramids, which is not something, or it's, of course, ancient Egyptians built the pyramids. Aliens built the pyramids. Yeah. Um, and that's not really something that factors into this story at all. Um, no, no, I, I was just, um, the, the, I mean, the gates and connection yeah. with ancient Egypt yeah. and stuff. I don't know if... That's actually, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, this was apparently a pretty popular, uh, like, book among nerds uh, in the 80s. I think Powers' um, uh, star has faded a little, maybe? Although it's worth noting, um, he wrote another book called On Stranger Tides, which was about uh, 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 pirates meeting and, I think, mermaids. Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, that got adapted into a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Yes, it did. That's exactly why I brought it up. So, okay. um, yeah, Powers uh, did get, like, that. It, it, as I say, the original novel is obviously not with Captain Jack Sparrow, although apparently there was a character in that book called Captain Jack, which means it was probably the inspiration for Captain Jack Sparrow in the oh, first place. Oh, there's lots of Captain Jacks. To yeah, I, mean, I guess. There's a Captain Jack in Doctor Who. I mean, it's it's a thing. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but I, anyway, it was just... And in real life, like there was, you know, Calico Jack and, you know... Right. As it, we, was, it was a thing. Yeah, as we discussed in the pirate episode. But um, yeah. yeah, no, it's... it's um, yeah, it's it, 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 whether a happy accident or a deliberate influence uh, on the... Uh, the the, the movie, um, they were able to sort of slot in uh, Jack Sparrow as the protagonist for uh, On Stranger Tides. Apparently it's pretty, lo- uh, as it would have to be, it's a pretty loose adaptation of the novel. Yeah, I didn't see that one. So yeah, I so, nor have I. Uh, but yeah, they did, like, l- it was literally credited, to, it wasn't just a thing where they ripped it off, they credited uh, Tim Powers, and I presume he got money for it. Um and so it's it's technically an adaptation that was turned into a sequel to an existing franchise. But anyway, yeah, so weird when that happens. I, I one of the Marx Brothers movies was actually not written as a Marx Brothers movie, and they just adapted the script to them, mm. which is wild to me because you know their movies are so you know heavily based on their comedic personas. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you could argue uh, Aliens is a is a de facto adaptation of Starship Troopers. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a few other things like that, but. Um, yeah, and of course Terminator being as we've as we've said, it's kind of an adaptation of uh, uh, a few different Harlan Ellison stories. Yeah, but I mean, uh, taking like a an unrelated thing and and um, mm-hmm. sh- uh, shoving a um, you know popular property into it. Yeah, yeah. Like shoving it into yeah, it's it's a weird it's a weird thing that sometimes happens. Yep, and yet it it did yeah that's more of it that's more common in the olden days uh, of film but uh yeah they did it with the fourth uh, Paris of the caribbean movie so there you go and that was a tim powers book which i kind of want to read now anyway because anubis gates really is a good book so uh i'm i'm curious to to check that out at some point um and uh but yeah so he was he was a bit of a cult uh he, it's not like highbrow literature. It's funny because it's a smart book, and it, but it's pulpy. It's an, it's making no, um, it's not what anyone would list as like an you know uh, a highbrow literary book. But it's it does require it does expect the the reader to be fairly literate, fairly well educated, and to be able to follow what's going on and, and think about this stuff. So it's 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 popular mainstream populist, but it's also you know, smart. It's not dumb, right? It's not, oh, this is going to be mm-hmm. dumb pulp. So, uh, you know, I really like that. It's It's got the sort of a Foucault's pendulum thing going on, which is the other another book that, you know, was considered to be a beachfront, uh, a, a beach novel. But, you know, it's... Uh, it's I've never actually smart. read that one. Yeah, we should almost do that one. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that that's kind of the, the inspiration for the Da Vinci Code, from what I understand. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, is it at all related to like Illuminatus trilogy in that vein, or is it a different? I think it's 
in the ballpark. I think it, there's a bit of an okay. overlap there. Um, I I read the first because I've half had it, it recommended to me. I just didn't really look into it. I, I, again, like I say, it's 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 got that thing of it's it's similar to this novel in some ways in that it's a this compendium of weird historical data. In that case, it gets into the the whole idea of like what happened to the Holy Grail and the Rosicrucians and secret histories and so on. Um, but um, it's a uh, it, it, like so it's got lots of you know interesting historical facts and expects the re, you know expects the reader to keep up with it but it's it's also meant to just be like an airport thriller it's not meant to be mm. uh you know so it's a, it's an interesting period in through the 70s and 80s where you could write books like that and and you know it wasn't they the the two weren't seen as being in conflict in any way um and it wasn't like and it wasn't self it, same with this book you know i it's again it's a smart book it it's about a guy who knows a lot about romantic po- poets and and history and so on, but it's in no way like self-conscious about just being a, a ripping read. It's not trying to like experiment with the form. And I don't. I think if you asked him, I uh, sorry, I do. I do know. Have I have seen some quotes from him where he's just like, yeah, it's just a ripping good good time. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to pretend I'm a great literary titan or anything. It's just. It's just a good. Uh, a good read. He's not self-conscious about it, and yet he's made a smarter book than a lot of the people who try to make popular populist fiction these days. So it's good in that way. Well, the black boat passeth through the gates of night, so it's time for another What Mad Universe to die so it can be reborn again. Uh, We've been your hosts, the horrible clown wizard Adam Prosser and beggar king Philip Rice. We are directed from afar by the ancient Egyptian sorcerer and part-time producer and engineer, Alex Ross. And the theme song was by obscure Romantic-era composer, Jack Furick. Uh, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for our hosting costs and our eventual mummification. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2S's. Or go to neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also join our merry band of beggars and thieves on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Hafok with an F-A for Philip. Uh, I also, again, want to plug uh, HeroesLive.tv, which is an online compendium of film and comics, which I am the comics editor for. Uh, it's got some great stuff, including uh, Philip's own uh, comic, The Apex Society, and some of my own comics. Uh, you can subscribe and get all kinds of great content. It's kind of an indie streaming site with, uh, with both comics and film. Uh, so have a look at that, heroeslive.tv. And with that, we leap once more through time to two weeks hence. We'll see you there.